So if you'll stand with me out of respect for the reading of God's Word, we're going to start in verse 14 of Revelation chapter 22. These are the words of our Lord Jesus. He said, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. But outside are dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and whoever loves and practices a lie. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you so much for today. Thank you for your word. Lord, thank you for the opportunity to hear it, to study it, to, to learn to live by it. Lord, I pray that you would use it, um, Holy Spirit, to convict and change hearts this morning and help us when we leave to look more like you than we did when we got here. In Jesus' name, amen. Uh, you can be seated. Uh, so this morning, uh, we're going to talk about how our actions matter. And I want to give a little bit of a... Uh, What's the word? It's not a warning. Uh, it's not really a caution. Think of it as a public service announcement to say this at the beginning uh, of this sermon. Uh, I said it last week and I'll say it this week. Your pastor has never, is not, and will never preach that any man, woman, boy, or girl can be saved on their own steam. You cannot work your way into heaven. If you are trying to work your way into heaven... You cannot do it. Stop trying and come to Jesus. He's already done everything for you that needs to be done for you to be saved. That being said, we make a, we make a mistake in the church, capital C, on a regular basis, that our works, because they do not save us, do not matter. When the reality is that they do matter for more than one reason. Last week we saw how our works matter because while everyone's salvation is the same, if you're saved, you're saved by Christ. There's never been anybody who's been more saved than somebody else, right? We talked about that last week, but we did see that our works matter because while everyone's salvation in Christ is equal, everyone's reward for obedience to Him is not. In that sense, works matter. In a different sense today, we're going to see that works matter in that there is no such thing as a saved person who does not work in obedience to Jesus Christ. Now, that work may be carried out to differing levels, they're, they're, therefore the difference in reward, but there is no such thing as a saved person who never puts shoulder to the plow for their Lord Jesus Christ. There is a name for that kind of person, lost uh, that, that's, that's what that kind of person is. So if you're here today and you say, I'm saved, and you believed you're saved because you walked that aisle at some point when you were eight years old and you cried some tears and you, you prayed a prayer with, some pa with a pastor, but there is no evidence of saving faith in your life. You don't desire the Word of God. You don't enjoy being with the people of God. And you don't enjoy serving the God that saved you. If you can't point to any sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit, you might need to question whether or not you're actually saved. Because works, by necessity, follow the saving work of Jesus Christ. So we're going to look at three qualities of saved people this morning. And the first one we're going to look at is that saved people do more than talk. Saved people do more than talk. Uh, we'll look at verse 14, it says, Blessed are those who do His commandments, that they may have the right to the tree of life 
and may enter through the gates into the city. Now, the city that we're discussing is the New Jerusalem. It is the homeland of those who have given their lives to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is their eternal abode and blessedness. That's where they enjoy what Jesus said would be no more sickness, no more death, no more suffering, no more pain. That's where that goes on. And Jesus says, blessed are those. Now, does this sound familiar to anything else Jesus may have said somewhere else in Scripture? Sure. It's at the beginning of Matthew 5, at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, that you might know this as a beatitude. It's a type of a proverb that typically says, blessed are those who, and then gives you the reason or the quality that has led to their blessedness. Now, the basic meaning of the word blessed is happy, but it means more than that. Blessedness is happiness with a divine source. That it's happiness that you have because of some relationship that you have with God. And this happiness is a result of that divine favor or approval. So Jesus says, blessed are those. These people have divine approval. These people enjoy divine favor. Well, who are these people? Blessed are those who do what, church? Who do his commandments, right? Isn't that what the book says? Blessed are those who do his commandments. This is the lifestyle that has resulted in divine favor. Now, what is the blessing that they receive? Jesus says this next. That they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter through the gates into the city. And John clearly identifies the blessed as the redeemed. How do I know that? Only the redeemed of God have the right to the tree of life. They're the only people that get it. Second, only the redeemed may enter through the gates into the city. If you go back and you look at some of the passages we've already covered, only people whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life can pass through the gates into this city. So these people who do His commandments are the same people that have been saved by the blood of Jesus. This state of blessedness or the state of being redeemed, Jesus says, is attained by doing His commandments. At first glance, this may appear to fly in the face of an essential doctrine of our faith, which is salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And this looks a lot like salvation through works, doesn't it? Like if you just read it quickly, that's, that's what it looks like. Access to the tree of life, access to the city of God, they belong only to the redeemed, and the redeemed here are classified as those who do his commandments. The good news is there is an explanation for this. This is not a passage of Scripture that turns your understanding of salvation on its head and tells you you better get to work a la the Jehovah's Witnesses and try and earn your spot. Right? That's what they believe. They believe there's a certain number of spots and you've got to work and earn your way in. That's not what the Bible teaches. That's why we don't believe that. Right? So first, let's establish the settled nature of salvation by grace through faith in Christ. If you look at Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 and 9, you ought to, everybody ought to memorize these verses. Everybody ought to have these two verses. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of, say it with me church, works. Okay? It's really hard to say you're saved by works when Paul just said, not by works. Right? That's pretty cut and dry. Lest anyone should boast. You can only boast about things that you've done. So if you hadn't done them, you can't boast in them. 
So Paul says it's not by works. Paul made very clear that works don't determine the state of our soul salvation. And the grace of God shown to us by his gift of faith in Christ is the sole source of our salvation. So that being true, in what sense can the redeemed be those who do his commandments? And you might find the answer in a place that you don't expect. It's in one book of the Bible that if, if you're going to talk about grace and not works, it's probably the last book you would think you're going to land in, and that's the book of James. Uh, the book of James is a famous book for being about works, right? About behavior. Um, so if you look on your handout, you'll notice I quoted James 2.14, but I quoted it in the New American Standard Bible. Let me tell you why I did that. Um, it's not that the New King James uh, it gets it wrong. It's that they don't emphasize something that the Greek actually says. And you can misinterpret that verse if you don't put this word in there. So if you read it in the New American Standard, James is talking about uh, saving faith. And he says, what use is it, my brethren, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? Not just can faith save him. That's what your King James is going to say. He's going to say, can faith save him? Now, they, it's not that the word is not there. It's that the translators in the King James did not emphasize the that. Okay? The point that James is trying to make is there are two different kinds of quote-unquote faith. There is saving faith that results in working in obedience to Christ, right? You're not working in order to be saved. You're working out of the overflow of the work that Christ has done in your life, right? There's that kind of faith, that saving faith. It results in a life change. And then there is faith. Now, that faith is not any faith at all. That's purely lip service. It's saying something or maybe thinking the right thoughts but it's not really believing in God, which is what he explains in verses 21 through 24. He explains and makes his case for this division between these two different types of faith, one of which is faith, the other which is not. Look at verse 21 in James 2. Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works, and as a result of the works, faith was perfected. Now, in Greek, this word perfected is kind of the idea of completion. That it's brought to its natural end. It's fulfilled. It's done. So, if you've ever had your... Uh, anybody have a, a test, maybe, that you were given in school that had a time limit on it? Did you ever have those? that the teacher tells you you've got 45 minutes to complete this test. If your teacher was speaking Greek, she would say you've got 45 minutes to perfect this test. Most of us probably perfected it neither in the English way nor the Greek way. But that's what she would have meant if she was speaking Greek, that you've got 45 minutes to complete this test to bring it to its end. So he says it. As a result of his works, faith was perfected. It was brought to its intended end. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. And it was reckoned to him as righteousness. How do we know that Abraham actually believed God? 
Because God told him, in this child, in Isaac, will my covenant proceed. All of my blessings that I've promised you, they're going to go through Isaac. So when God told Abraham in Genesis 22, I want you to take Isaac up this mountain and sacrifice him to me. The book of Hebrews teaches us, now I didn't put this on your handout, but you can read this in Hebrews. It says that Abraham logically deduced that God was going to raise his son from the dead. As of yet, in that point in scripture, no one had been resurrected. But Abraham had enough faith in the promises of God that he said, if God's telling me to sacrifice my son Isaac on the top of this mountain, but he's also promised that he's going to fulfill all the promises he made to me in my son Isaac, then if I obey him, he's just going to have to bring my son back from the dead. That's going to have to be what happens. And so Abraham loaded up his son Isaac, and up the mountain he went. And that's proof that he believed the word of God. We know that, we see that, because if he did not believe the word of God, if he didn't believe that God was good for his word, would he have taken Isaac up the mountain? No, he would have tried to protect those promises. Well, no, I can't do that, because the same God that's telling me to do this also told me that he was the one I was going to get all the promises through. So I've got to disobey God in order to receive the promise. That doesn't make sense, right? And he was called the friend of God. You see then that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. It is not saying that Abraham's works saved him. Abraham believed God and it was counted for righteousness. But how do we know that Abraham believed God? We saw his works. The works were a natural extension of his belief. Some writers find a contradiction between the writings of Paul and of James. In reality, these writers are not opposed at all. They're just writing to different audiences with different needs. Paul emphasized the grace of God to those who needed to hear that their works weren't on the basis or weren't the basis on which God accepted them. James emphasized the obedience which naturally results from faith to those who merely paid lip service. To the gospel. On the one hand, Paul had a congregation who was down in the dumps because try as they might, they couldn't do enough. That congregation needed encouragement. Jesus had already done enough for them. But on the other hand, James had a congregation who felt no need to try obeying Jesus at all, provided they could think and say the right things. Their sin was a big enough deal that Christ died to save them for it or save them from it, but not a big enough deal that they needed to cease living in it. They needed rebuke. How would they answer Jesus' question that he asks in Luke 6, 46? Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That was the group James was writing to. You had a whole church full of folks who claimed the name Christian, who claimed to follow Christ, but there was no evidence of that belief in the way that they lived, the way that they spoke, the way that they worked, the way that they spent their time, the way that they spent their money, the way that they treated their brothers and sisters. There was no evidence of it whatsoever. But if you asked them, they could give you all the right answers. They could say all the right words. They could pull out their Bible. Well, they couldn't because this was, you know, they didn't have a printing press. 
But if this was today, these are folks who can pull out their Bible and show you the date that they wrote down where they walked the aisle. They could show you the date where their pastor dumped them under the water. They could show you the pictures or the video maybe of their baptism. But if you were to look at their life on mute, if you were to look at some of y'all in here football fans, I know y'all, it's a great pastime amongst Georgia fans that the, the television commentators are garbage. But the radio commentators are awesome. So you watch the TV and you mute the TV, but you turn the radio on and you listen to the people on the radio tell you what's going on in the game, right? If you were to watch these people's lives on mute, if you could hit the mute button and never hear their words, would you be able to tell they were Christians? And James's answer would be no. I can't tell that you are because you don't think that obedience matters. The reality is this, we are saved by faith in Christ. The natural result, though, of saving faith is obedience to the God who saved us. If a man, woman, boy, or girl has really been redeemed, it's going to show up in that person's actions. He's not going to be made perfect on this side of glory, but evidence of that changed heart and growth to maturity in Christ is going to happen. It's inevitable. The reverse is also true. If there's no fruit... You can be 100% positive that there's no root. If you don't do the things he says, you cannot in any meaningful way call Jesus Lord. So questions, do you claim to possess saving faith without being able to point to any sanctifying work of the Holy Spirit in your life? If you were to look at the trajectory of your life, do you see yourself loving Jesus more and loving your sin less. If you don't see that, I've heard folks say, oh, pastor, there are sins that I struggle with, and that's fine, but I just want to make sure that you're using that word struggle correctly. Because to struggle against something means you fight against it, right? If it's just present in your life and you're not fighting against it, you don't get to use the word struggle. A sin that you dive into and enjoy with reckless abandon is not a sin that you struggle with. A sin that you struggle with is one that you fight with every fiber of your being empowered by the Holy Spirit and His sanctifying work pushes it out of your life because it has no place there. That's when you get to use the word struggle. You don't get to use the word struggle if you embrace it and hang on to it like it's your best friend. And second, do you claim to possess saving faith without being able to point to righteous obedience empowered by the indwelling Holy Spirit. Now, that's different from what I just talked about. I said, can you see your disobedience decreasing? Now I'm saying, can you see your obedience increasing? There are sins of commission that we want to go away, and there are sins of omission that we want to go away. There are certain things that we should not do because we follow Christ, and there are certain things that we should do because we follow Christ. Do you find yourself doing fewer of the things that you should not be doing and more of the things that you should be doing? Because that is what the work of the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Okay? So first, say people do more than talk. Second, saved people love Jesus more than they love their sin. Look at verse 15. But dogs and sorcerers and sexually immoral and, and murderers and idolaters, they're outside. So I took this 
from the Baker Evangelical Commentary on the New Testament. It says, The righteous enter the gates into the city, while the unsaved, or the Greek word echo, are outside. And I, I quoted it because of this next sentence, because I thought it was hilarious but worthwhile. This hardly means that their home for eternity is going to be in heaven's suburbs. Okay? When it says they're outside, it doesn't mean that there's the gate and all the saved people are inside the gate, but there's small subdivisions for unsaved people right outside the gate that they get to live in for all eternity. That's not, that's not what's being said here. The imagery parallels that of Jesus dying outside the gate and our need to go to him outside the camp, which signified the Old Testament curse for the blasphemer who was cut off from the covenant community. One of the worst things that could happen to you in the Old Testament. If you've ever read, uh, particularly in the first five books, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, one of the worst penalties that could be levied against you, you ever read the part where it says, he shall be cut off from his people? And what does that mean? Well, you've got the covenant community of God. You've got the Jews. That all the promises of God belong to that community. So to be cut off from that community means that you are cut off from the promises of God. Now that's, that's pretty scary, I would think. Right? So, so what this is saying is that the people outside this community, they don't receive the promises of God. And this is not all that shocking. Because all the promises of God belong to who? The church. Now I'm not saying the church is replacing Israel. I'm, I mean, the New Testament makes very clear. The church is the true Israel. That all Israel who's ever trusted God is part of the church now. You could say Israel's the church. You could say the church is Israel. You can say whatever you want. The two groups are one and the same. It's not that one has replaced the other. But the folks who are outside, they're not part of that group. So they don't experience the blessings of God. And then you've got a laundry list of unbelieving lifestyles. Dogs, sorcerers, sexually immoral, murderers, and idolaters. You might say, well, that's pretty mean to those dogs. Why are you calling them a dog? I love my dog. You know, I don't have a dog. I have cats. But... We think in the West of dogs as being, you know, Fido. Uncle's got a pit bull named Brutus. Big old dog. Just the biggest little baby you've ever seen. A 65-pound baby that wants to come and just sit his, sit his head on your knee and scratch you, and he does a little leg kick thing when you scratch him. We think of dogs like that. That's not the way they think of them in the Middle East. <laughs> Now, that's not to say that people don't have pet dogs in the Middle East. But those aren't the dogs we're talking about. We're not talking about a little Pomeranian. We're not talking about your, your, your collie. We're not talking about any of those. We're not talking about your, your retrievers or your labs. We're talking about those strays that walk around in the streets that are scavengers, that you have no idea where they've been, what they've eaten, they're just universally unclean. And what does the dog do when you walk outside? He is, is he going to stay away from you or is he going to try and come up to you? He's probably going to try and come up to you. When a dog is ritually unclean, 100% of the time, dogs are not enjoyed if you're trying to remain ritually pure because you don't want to have anything to do with them. They have no home. 
It seems like they have no purpose. They're just kind of there and they're unclean and they're surrounded by dead, stinking things. Middle Eastern stray dogs. That's what people who have rejected Jesus have become at this point. Impure, no home, scavengers, unclean. Does that seem harsh? Remember, nobody outside the gates had to be there. This is a a quote from a book review on a book called A Gentle Answer by Scott Sauls. Cultivating a gentle spirit hinges on a paradigm shift. Jesus and Christianity do not discriminate between good people and bad people. Instead, Jesus and Christianity discriminates between humble people and proud people. Jesus doesn't discriminate between the good and the bad, well, because we're all bad. We're all sinners. If he discriminated between good people and bad people, we'd all be out. Rather, it's a humble heart that Jesus can mold and use. He can't use the proud because they can't submit to his will. Pride will never allow for gentleness because it will never admit its own faults. Humility is the pathway to embodying Jesus' gentleness. This book review, coincidentally from a book that has nothing to do with the book of Revelation, makes an excellent point. The division between those inside the city over against those who are refused entry is not a division between good people and bad people. To be sure, those who are inside the city have been made good, but goodness was not their original state. Those inside the city recognized and repented of their sin. In humility, they admitted their faults. They came to Christ for forgiveness. They allowed Jesus to change them. They allowed the Holy Spirit to sanctify them and bear fruit in them. And while it's accurate now to say, this day, if you're saved today, you can say, I am a sinner saved by grace, right? You can say that. But in that day, it will no longer be an accurate statement. Because you will be saved by grace, but you will no longer be a sinner, That will no longer be your identity. That part of of saved people will have been done away with at that point. But on the other hand, those who love their sin now and refuse to give it up will continue in eternity in their state of sinful degradation. Let this truth ring in your ears forever. May it never go away. The event that we know as death makes permanent the state of your soul at that moment. If you are in Christ, your redeemed soul will one day be given a redeemed body to match it. You will continue on into eternity unblemished by the destructive force that we know is sin. But if you have loved your sin more than Christ and chosen to stay in it until your body gives way to sin's natural consequence, which is the wages of sin is death, then your soul will be sentenced forever to remain in that state of sinful degeneration. These men and women are not referred to as such. They're referred to as dogs amongst other, sin, amongst other characterizations. Rather than focus on their humanity, the text focuses on their sin. That sin has become their identity. 
In torment, it will not matter who you were to your husband, who you were to your wife, who you were to your children, who you were to your friends, your boss, your mailman, your grocer, your fishing buddies. It will only matter who you were to God. And these people chose to rebel against Him and love their sin instead. So in eternity, that's who they get to be. They wanted to let sin define their lives, and now they get their wish. That's all they are now, and that's all they'll ever be. It's a sobering thought, isn't it? To never be more than the sin that you let define your life. Your name no longer matters. To be saved, you've got to decide. What do you love most? Do you love Jesus or do you love your sin? Because that's really the choice. Proverbs 8.36 says, He who sins against me wrongs his own soul. All those who hate me love death. James 4.1-6 Where do wars and fights come from among you? Do they not come from your desires for pleasure that war in your members? You lust and you do not have? You murder and covet and cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask amiss that you may spend it on your pleasures. Adulterers and adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Whoever therefore wants to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you think that the scripture says in vain, the spirit who dwells in us yearns jealously, but he gives more grace? Therefore, he says, God resists the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You cannot love both God and your sin. If you choose to love your sin unto death, then your sin is what you get to keep for all time. If you choose to love Jesus, then Jesus is what you get to keep for all time. But do not live under the delusion that you can somehow love and keep both. It's one or the other. So first we see that saved people do more than talk. Second we see that saved people love Jesus more than their sin. And then finally, briefly, we need to see that saved people hate and reject untruth. And you see the last phrase there in verse 15, and whoever loves and practices a lie. As a final closing word, there exists a dangerous place that many people dwell in without ever knowing that they reside there. And this is the hallmark of that place. Listening to a sermon so soaked in self-righteousness that it has saturated your being to the point that the gospel cannot soak in. Being convinced of your righteousness, you believe yourself to be beyond needing one more explanation of the saving work of Christ. No, that message is for others. Woo, it'd be great if so-and-so was here to hear that sermon. They need to be saved. That's a dangerous spot to be in, church. It's always bad to hear the Word of God and think about how much it's for other people. That doesn't mean other people don't need to hear it. But that does mean that whenever God speaks to you, first think about what He's saying to you. Everybody in here at some point has been, yes, okay, I see, I see parenting all throughout this room. Ever had the experience of speaking to a child 
knowing good and well that their ears work. They just aren't working at the moment. Because they're too focused on something else. Go clean up your blocks. But I just need to do this. Maybe you got more than one. Go clean up your blocks. They look at the other ones. Must not, they can't be talking to me. That, that command wasn't for me. Those words weren't for me. They must have been talking to somebody else. I'm above that. I am beyond that. That message is for somebody else. How sad to stand in front of Jesus and find out that all those messages you thought for somebody else were for you. All those warnings that you thought were directed at somebody else were directed at you. How sad. These people exist and they will walk out that back door or they will click the X at the top of this window. Assuming you've walked in it or you're watching this virtually and you will return to your life of darkness. Your life bears no evidence of saving faith. Your walk in Christ or what you think constitutes it barely registers on the list of your priorities. Jesus is the one insurance policy you have that doesn't cost you a premium. That's the way you think of him. As long as you've got your fire insurance card, you can sleep well at night and live no differently during the day. Listen to what the same man who wrote the book of Revelation wrote in 1 John chapter 1. This is the message which we've heard from him and declare to you, that God is light and in him is just a little bit of darkness enough that you can feel okay about the darkness that's in your life. Nope. In him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, that word's a present tense in Greek. It means continual action. Not just that you walk in darkness, but that you continue to walk in darkness. We lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Do you think John perceived a problem in some Christians who claimed to be Christians? To everyone who asked, they were proud of claiming the name Christian. But their lives did not reflect what they said. No, I don't have any sin. They say as they commit it. There's no struggle. There's no perception of the, the dissonance between the darkness that is the way they live and the light that they claim. No, these warnings are for you. These warnings are for you. That we see right here in verse 15, anyone who loves and practices a lie does not have a spot in the city. Christian, 
Are you lying? Because I promise you, if everybody in this building believes that you're saved, but Jesus doesn't, our word in this building doesn't amount to a hill of beans. Who are you to Jesus? That's all that matters. If you need to be saved this morning, now's the opportunity. Now's the day. You can be saved right now. All you have to do during this time of invitation is come on up here. Well, actually, no, because COVID. We're going to stand. Miss Joyce is going to lead us in a couple verses of an invitation hymn. And I'm going to be singing, and y'all are going to be standing out there singing. Just catch my eye. Wave at me. Come find me afterward. Stand six feet away and tell me you need to be saved. We'll make that happen. Jesus wants to save you today. That's why. That, that, that's that feeling in your, in your gut right now that's making you a little bit nervous. He wants you to be saved today. Don't you want to be saved? Go ahead and grab your bulletin. Let's sing together after we pray. Father.